0: I'm Dave Breckenridge, and you're listening to 10.3. The U.S., Canada, and Mexico have a new agreement to replace NAFTA, but there's still political follow to consider. Today, we'll look at how Canada fared, how the Trudeau government looks in all this, and how this could change future trade agreements. Plus, we catch up on what has apparently been a turbulent first year in office for Julie Payette, Canada's Governor General. It's Wednesday, October 3rd. Marie-Danielle Smith covers federal politics for the National Post. So, Marie-Danielle, let's just take a quick moment for listeners and run through some of the highlights of the deal.
1: Sure. Um, So this deal is coming after a very long period of renegotiation, right, that was launched by U.S. President Donald Trump, who felt that NAFTA was the worst deal ever. Um, and he's now claiming that this is the best deal ever, <laughs> this new one. So uh, Canada kind of managed to preserve a few of the things that it cares a lot about, um, including the, the dispute resolution um, mechanisms that we use on things like softwood lumber. Um, we also kept supply management intact, although we gave up a bit of the dairy market um, to the Americans. And I think the kind of the big takeaway here is that Mm-hmm. investor certainty will be much better now you know it's everyone's kind of waiting around to see what would happen and at the 11th hour they they pulled it off so I think there's a lot of relief
0: the deal it's it's now called the us mexico Canada agreement um, you you talk about opening up the dairy market to uh, American producers it's a it's about four percent just, just under four percent yeah and the dispute resolution this was related to if There were complaints about one of the other countries. It would be handled by a separate panel. It wouldn't have to go through the court system in in any one country, which may have given people an unfair advantage.
1: Yeah, that's right. So this this was a really big win um, for the government was just to even retain it because back in the original negotiation of the Canada U.S. free trade agreement, um, like a long time ago, before NAFTA even uh, started to be negotiated this was something that Canada really, really fought for and that the U.S. didn't Mm -hmm. want. So it's a big win that it's still there.
0: Overall, though, like there has been criticism from the dairy industry, and I understand there's been criticism from the steel and aluminum industry because as of right now, the tariffs that the Trump government put in place are still there. There are some people are saying that Canada sold out, uh, that we just gave the Americans what they wanted. Has Canada and the negotiating team salvaged a win at overall here?
1: It depends who you ask, right? I mean, th- there are a lot of people who will say that, that we have an agreement at all is already a bit of a win. So it's kind of like to not lose is actually to win in this case. A lot of people will say that. Um, but yeah, there are certainly some concessions that have been made. Uh, there will have to be some kind of comp- compensation for the dairy farmers. Uh, although I will note on that front that we already gave up um, a little bit less, but a similar uh, sort of th- around 3%, of, of the market in the TPP deal, which had originally yeah. been negotiated by uh, Barack Obama, right? And, uh, and in the CETA deal. So, so that's something that dairy farmers are kind of getting used to whenever we negotiate a new agreement, they're, they're giving up part of the market. Um, so yeah, you see some criticism there. And uh, overall, you know, there's an impression that if this had happened under any other administration in the US, Canada would have come out a lot better.
0: How does Trudeau come out looking politically in all this?
1: I think he considers it to be a political win. If this had dragged out longer beyond this particular deadline, which has to do with Congress and the midterms coming up in the u s, if things had dragged out much longer than that, I think um, it would have been pretty politically difficult for Trudeau. Uh, the next year's election you know would have would have revolved around whether he had failed on NAFTA or whether things were still hanging up in the air. So I think it kind of allows this government to move on. And that's that in itself is a bit of a win because it kind of takes the wind out of the sails of of anyone who's trying to criticize his approach to this, as the Conservatives have tried to do. So in that sense, it's a win. But, of course, we're all picking through this document and we're all finding a lot of areas where Canada has given up some power and control to the U.S. in such a way that that we haven't seen before. So it's kind of like every time you open up uh, a negotiation with the states, you're going to be giving up a little bit of our sovereignty, uh, is what mm-hmm. some people are saying, right? So, uh, you know, the very fact that this came up for renegotiation at all was was a problem. And and that's what some people will focus on.
0: Now, you, you say that you're finding stuff that, uh, Canada has had to give up or you keep looking deeper into the document. You're finding other areas where we've given up something. What, what have you, other than the dairy, uh, issue, uh, what else are you seeing that we've had to give up here?
1: Well, specifically, uh, what, what I noticed and and wrote about, um, is this clause that's kind of buried in a chapter about exceptions in this deal. Which asks the NAFTA partners, well, I guess the ASMACA, I'm not sure how we're pronouncing that. We've, we've got to talk about it. Um, the USMACA, <laughs> I heard today. I liked that one. USMACA, in the, in... <laughs> that sounds like a
0: Trumpish thing.
1: Yeah. So in the USMACA, um, there's, a, there's a clause that says um, if any party uh, in this deal wants to negotiate a trade agreement with a non market country, then they need to first notify the other partners. And then allow the other partners to review um, the text of an agreement before it's even signed. And then ultimately, um, if an agreement does get signed, once it's entered into force, the other two partners have the right to leave USMACA and form their own bilateral agreement. So,
0: but what does what does that mean by a non-market country?
1: So what it means is, uh, and this is where things get interesting. Um, this clause defines a non-market country as simply a country that has been determined to be a non-market country by any of the partners. So we're not relying on the World Trade Organization, which does actually have, um, in some cases, classifications where you can sort of you can you can slap that label on a country, and everyone's kind of on the same. Uh, Page. Instead, it's relying on the definition by one of the three administrations. So, what we're really talking about here is China, because the U.S. has sort of deemed China to be a non market economy. And they've talked about this quite a lot, uh, especially in complaints to the WTO. Um, So, uh, Vietnam is another example, but really what we're looking at here is a clause that gives the U.S. considerable leverage over. Um, Canada-China trade talks or Mexico-China trade talks. Although, uh, of course, Canada is, uh, it it really looks like it's focused on the fact that Canada has been leaning that way for a few years now.
0: Right. That Canada sees China as a potential large market for our technology, our resources, uh, and our companies. And Donald Trump is pretty firmly on the record. He's not a fan of China or their trade practices. So that puts us in a bit of a tough spot.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, people have pointed out this clause also gives us equal leverage over the U.S. if they were to try to negotiate a deal with China. But that just looks so far off right now because they're in the Mm. midst of an escalating trade war. They've got, I think it's $360 billion U.S. dollars worth of goods that now have tariffs on them between those two countries. It's just, it's like pretty much on a monthly basis, um, that then the level has gone up. So, you know, they're sort of in this situation where the US and sort of with it, the Western world, I guess you could, you could argue, is sort of pitting itself against China economically. And it's interesting, because this is coming at a time when China is more likely to follow international trade rules than the US. So, you know, it's kind of this strange situation where, the U.S. Is, is strong-arming other countries with tariffs that aren't um, necessarily legal by by world standards, um, but that they're trying to uh, sort of make sure that China doesn't get to enjoy the benefits of that market economy uh, as much as they can. So kind of kind of a weird tit-for-tat situation.
0: But there are some people who are saying that this isn't as sinister as the initial read, that it's just to give people a heads up. Is is the, cr- the criticism, the concern, overhyped a bit, or is it something to worry about?
1: Well, I think, I mean, the criticism is strong coming out of the gate, partly because we haven't heard any talk of this before. Um, this clause, as f- to my knowledge, as far as we can tell, it's the only time that um, a trade agreement has commented on other trade agreements or other potential trade agreements within itself. Uh, it's, it's a strange clause, and there hadn't been any discussion publicly about this being something that the U.S. wanted to put into um, mm-hmm. the new NAFTA agreement. So I think that's where sort of the strength of the criticism is coming from, is that it's, it's a bit of a shock for a lot of people. The thing here is that, you know, if, if Canada doesn't pursue a negotiation with China... I mean, that's pretty much the only situation in the near future that this clause could even apply to. So, sure, you know, if we felt that Canada and China weren't about to negotiate a deal, then, yeah, it's not really much of a big deal, is it? Um, But because the Liberal government specifically had been sort of um, making uh, some moves towards that, I think it does take on added significance and, you know, talking to experts on the China relationship now we see that it seems you know very unlikely that we would pursue a formal negotiation at this point because of this, so it changes the calculus a lot.
0: Well, I guess we'll see what plays out then on on that front. We'll be right back. I want to tell you about a discount we're offering exclusively for 10 three listeners on all post media digital subscriptions so you can get access to more great reporting on the issues that matter to you. When subscribing to the National Post, the Ottawa Citizen, the Montreal Gazette, the Saskatoon Star Phoenix, Regina Leader Post, Edmonton Journal, Calgary Herald, or the Vancouver Sun, just enter promo code PODCAST and you'll get 50% off a one-year digital subscription. It's a great way to stay informed. Again, that's promo code PODCAST. I want to jump over to another topic now, one that we were originally going to focus on for the show before you smack a... (laughs) <laughs> Broke. Um, what is up with Governor General Julie Payette? What is going on with that as uh, she wrapped up her first year in office? there There seems to be a bit of a bubbling controversy going on there.
1: Yeah, um, you're actually catching me on. Uh, this is the the day of her uh, anniversary of when she was installed, so that October 2nd, 2017. Since then, things have been um, a little bit testy for the governor general. Uh, we started hearing rumors um, in the spring this year that, that things at Rideau Hall had, had been a little different under her tenure. So started asking some questions and, and recently did some reporting on that. The gist is that she's had a difficult first year. Um, it seems like her, you know, her personality isn't necessarily a, a perfect fit with the role and, and that her roles and responsibilities and her agenda and the events she does has all been affected by that and has all sort of resulted in a bit of a bit less of an active uh, tenure.
0: What is it that people feel she's not doing or that she what areas is she not being active in?
1: Yes, yeah, so there's a bunch of different areas. One of the most obvious is when it comes to organizations that she works with, charitable organizations um, who are hosting events and putting on awards ceremonies that she is not attending when her predecessor did. Um, And the review of of patronages that her predecessor gave to organizations that that she hasn't. So those are some obvious ones. But this extends even to, you know, uh, events that carry her title. Uh, There are a couple of Governor General's awards that she isn't giving out this year for unknown reasons. And those organizing those awards have, have not been really communicated with as to why you know, why she won't be attending and and that kind of thing. It's kind of as she alluded to in, in some of her recent interviews where she's trying to smooth over some of the tensions created by the media coverage. She's saying, you know, it's been it's been a bad year for communication. We could have communicated better. And I, I think a lot of organizations would agree with her. But the problems kind of have gone beyond that. From what we are hearing from from many sources around Rideau Hall. She also sort of has been reluctant to engage in the constitutional duties that she has. Or there's been some sort of tension around things like rearranging her schedule for a royal ascent ceremony or, you know, tension around um, the signing of honours Order of Canada um, awards and that kind of thing. So it kind of has extended to the internal matters of Rito Hall as well.
0: Some people may hear that and think, oh, what's the big deal? It's just a symbolic position or a position that's just for show. Like, What is the importance of these concerns or the role of the governor general
1: i mean ultimately the governor general is the person who can dissolve parliament and decide who's going to be the prime minister and she's the person who signs bills into law so for example when i mentioned the royal assent ceremony it's possible or it looks as though there was a bit uh, a bit of controversy around Having to rearrange her schedule to come and sign a bill into law that and that included the cannabis bill in June, and that mm-hmm. was a, a really big piece of government legislation, um, but yeah, ultimately it, the Governor general does have some important responsibilities she 's also making a very big salary um, i think it's it 's three hundred thousand dollars you know uh, of of taxpayer money um, that that is going towards her personal salary and then there's there 's all this infrastructure around Rito hall and and her staff as well, so it 's a big operation um it has symbolic meaning but but yeah she ultimately could be the decider of who's the next prime minister if there's a minority situation and we had a very good example recently in new brunswick of how the viceregal sort of role can be so important in 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 democracy and how it plays out
0: yeah that was where the the liberals who were in power before the election got one seat fewer one fewer seat than the pcs and it was a minority uh, uh, legislature, mm-hmm. and the the premier has been given the chance to try and uh, gain confidence of the house and, and govern with a minority mandate. Although that created its own controversy, cons- the PCs there felt that they won because they had the most seats. Um, when did you start hearing about all this? Was it was it relatively soon into her? first year or has it just been recently this this started kind of bubbling up as whispers in the hallways?
1: Yeah well I think for me um, when I started to to really hear some concerns was was about in the spring this year. She had been in place for uh, about six months then and um, usually governors general are sort of given a bit of leeway when they come into office. It's expected that it'll take some time to adjust and she had put a lot of the programming under review which is why we noticed that she was participating in fewer events and that kind of thing. Uh, But normally within the first few months, you would um, get some resolution. You would see their review being completed, um, more of sort of her own stamp on the office being put, um, new programming, that kind of thing, getting used to the pace, which is a very intense pace. And uh, I'll note that her predecessor, David Johnston, was particularly active. So she has that to sort of go up against. but yeah, after a few months, you know, you expect those things to be resolved. And when they weren't, that's when people started uh, to sort of whisper in earnest about some of the, the issues they were encountering.
0: How has Payette responded in regards to the, the concerns that she's not as active? Like, has she defended herself or her commitment to the role?
1: She has. Um, you know, we had heard uh, that she might even want to be leaving the post. And we've, we heard that she was unhappy in the role and, and reported that. And um, I think a lot of what we've seen from her since our report and since other organizations also um, put out their own investigations, Globe Mail, Toronto Star, you know, we start to see her trying to defend herself and double down on this role. And kind of really decide, okay, I guess I'm staying um, so she she says that she feels honored to be in the role she though admitted in a, a recent CTV interview that she hadn't thought a lot about it before getting involved. She had within twenty four hours of Justin Trudeau asking her to do it, she had accepted, and she also admitted that she didn't know very much about what the Governor General actually does when she took this job, so you know. The question is, did the prime minister warn her what it was going to be like, and did did he ever stop to think, well, is she going to enjoy this job? Is she going to be good at it? That doesn't seem to, be, to have been part of the calculus. She was just this you know, incredible star candidate that they, that they wanted to land and that maybe they didn't prepare very well for the role. So she, she is doubling down, though, and, and we start seeing more press releases from her in the past couple of weeks, uh, and probably that's uh, no coincidence after some of the reporting that we've seen. So let's see what she does with it.
0: Yeah, I mean, this is a a case where it's a role that is heavily scrutinized typically at first when someone is is named and uh, appointed to that role. There are people curious how they're going to set out their course over the next five years. Um, But that eventually dies down. I think obviously the scrutiny on her is probably greater than it was a year ago. So I guess we will see how uh, she responds to it.
1: Yeah, and, you know, next year uh, when we have an election, we'll see... Um, how she's able to sort of handle the responsibilities that that come with that, and if she has to make a tough decision, uh, that, that scrutiny will go up again.
0: Awesome. Well, thanks very much, Marie Danielle. Thank you. Here's what else is happening. In his first press conference since his election win Monday, Quebec's premier-designate pledged to work for all Quebecers. On Tuesday, Coalition Avenir Quebec leader Francois Legault said the first priorities for his government will be the economy, education and health. He also maintained he will carry forward on reducing the number of immigrants to Quebec to 40,000 next year and plans on hiking the legal age for marijuana use to 21. With the CAC defeat of the Liberals Monday night, Quebecers elected a party that isn't the Parti Quebecois or Quebec Liberal Party for the first time in 50 years. Ten Three is produced by Carson Jarama and Carrie Anne Sprawl. I'm Dave Breckenridge. Thanks for listening.